Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in a man. Hmm. Right, that's fascinating. So many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. The Greek words for believed and entrust are the same. So they believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. Hmm. What a remarkable statement. And so if we get over the shock right, of that statement and begin to think about it, right, we know what Jesus is saying is true. We have all known people that came to Jesus, right, in an emotional fray or because of what they received or perceived that he could give them in this life. We know people and children in particular that believe, right, because of cultural or familial pressures. They discover that the actual life of following Jesus is both costly and challenging, fighting against both the worldly influences about us and the fleshly desires within us. And they fall away, or much worse, they put up a facade of faith that masks their lost heart. This is why we use the term perseverance of the saints rather than once saved, always saved. The former is much more accurate, a much more accurate rendering of putting our faith in Christ and is not seen in specific moments necessarily, but in patterns of sanctified behavior demonstrating the power and influence of the Holy Spirit within a person's life. Does that make sense? So Jesus knows what it is a man and a woman, right? He knows our hearts and our heart is what has to change to follow Christ. The heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh, sensitive to the spirit and God's creation about us, rendering kingdom work through the spirit's power and recognizing and calling out as a witness to his work. We might be able to fool one another for a while, but eventually the cracks will show if we're trying to imitate aspects of salvation in our own power. The next section of scripture demonstrates that Jesus knows what's in a person's heart, right? We see the encounter with Nicodemus, the woman in Samaria, right? The woman at the well, the official and his son and the healing at the pool, of, uh, the healing at the pool on Sabbath. Jesus saw the doubt and confusion in Nicodemus and brought clarity. The woman at the well was lost and searching and Jesus brought her clarity and redemption. He saw faith in the centurion pronouncing his son healed before the centurion believed. In the sick man at the pool, Jesus used this healing to show the true heart of the Jews who persecuted him, right? So this is the goodness of God. He will not let us believe in wrong ways, in ways that do not, believe, that do not lead to life. He makes clear what true belief looks like, that we live for him, giving him our very lives. Does that make sense? Now the fun part. John 3, 1 through 10. You must be born again. Now, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, 
how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of, the, of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Right? Now there was a man rings a little different, right? In light of those previous verses. Right? That God knows what's in the heart, what's in, a, what's in, the, what's in what is inside a man. Right? Jesus knows what's in his heart before Nicodemus comes to him. He was a ruler of the Jews, so he was a member of the Sanhedrin. So one of the 70, which is like the Supreme Court of Israel. Um, and his name means conqueror of the people, which I find fascinating. Um, as the narrative continues, we see clearly how Nick is an example of why Jesus did not believe in human, in human believing. Right? And by the way, I'm going to refer to him as Nick quite a bit. I do that with Bible characters not to be cute, but because they were normal people like you and I are. Right? These are normal people with an extraordinary God. You know what we are? An ordinary people with an extraordinary God, right? If I teach Moses, I call him Big Mo, right? Because he's Big Mo, right? I mean, they didn't walk around saying proper, proper English, especially because they were speaking Aramaic, right? But, they, but there wasn't, a, right? The, these, these are normal. Nick, Nick was a normal person, right? And he, and he was a leader, and, a, and he, we would have thought of him as one of the leaders of our church, right? one of the great men of faith. And here he is confused, right? And doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. So outside of this narrative, Nick is, mentioned, uh, Nick is only mentioned in this gospel. In, in chapter 7, verse 50, he raises an objection among the chief priests and Pharisees that the law does not judge a man without, quote, a hearing and learning what he does, unquote, when Jesus was being accused when he was absent. He was promptly shot down in chapter 7, verse 51. Um, and the last time we see Jesus, we see Nick, is at Jesus' burial. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed at hand, close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So we don't know that Nick believed, right? But he certainly was, he was certainly willing to be associated with Jesus in his death and a culturally risky move in the honor-shame culture of the time. So Nick came at night, which some commentators equate with not wanting to be seen or coming under the cloak of darkness. And that, that could be true. But it also probably represents his spiritual condition. While trying to follow God according to the Jewish cultural principles, he was certainly not following God to the point that he could recognize Jesus as Messiah. We see light and darkness as opposing principles from the beginning of this gospel, right all the way back to verses four and five, one, four, and five, with darkness illustrating such negative aspects as Satan, error, evil, doubt, 
and unbelief. Nick was a man in an uneasy state of unbelief and doubt. Right? Nick addressing Jesus as rabbi indicates he was not there for an open confrontation. This is a title of respect, although the Sanhedrin would not have had such respect for a man who worked with his hands, right, a carpenter, and therefore could not dedicate the time to study the law and tradition of the elders, which Jesus addresses in John 7.15, and we see in Acts 4.13 with Peter and John. So John 7.14-16 says, About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Nice being God when you get to teach. And so when they, and then in Acts 4.30, right? Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus, right? He continues to surprise, right? He continues to be unexpected. Uh, to his credit, right, Nick was accurate on recognizing that no one could do the signs Jesus did without God being with him. The signs point to reality, and one of the uh, point to reality, and one of the important themes of John's gospel is the recurring call of Jesus for the people to recognize and the witness this witness being given in the signs. Um, Ben, my son Benjamin, uh, we, we, we were at a, a young adult Bible study at the, at the Brentwood campus called Kairos on Tuesday nights. Ben was about seven, and uh, Mike was teaching along, and he said, uh, I should be able to ask you at any point what you're reading in the Bible and what Jesus is teaching you from that. Let me show you how easy this is. Benjamin, come up here. My seven-year-old is getting ready to walk up in front of 400 people and explain something. That's not, for those of you who've had a seven-year-old, that's not good. <laughs> so as I began praying and fasting, because there wasn't anything to eat, um, Benjamin pops up there. And so uh, Mike goes, Ben, uh, what, what, what you reading in the Bible? And he said, the parting of the Red Sea. Wow. He said, well, are they getting ready to cross? He said, no. So have they already come across? He said, no. So you left him in the middle? He said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. He said, well, what, what's Jesus teaching you? He said, well, Mr. Mike, said, Jesus is teaching me that God doesn't do miracles to show off, but to confirm his authority. To which all of Kairos went, who? <laughs> to which I went, praise Jesus. Is there anything could have happened at that point? So I'm very thankful that something theologically accurate did. So that's very, very believing. But that's, that's the whole thing, right? The signs and wonders aren't of themselves, right? And, and they're not to back, but they're to confirm God's authority, right? They point to reality, right? Because the reality is God controls all this. He's sovereign in all this, right? That's reality. But we rarely live like that, right? that that's what reality is, right? That that's what reality is. The signs are not an end in themselves, and Nick's mere reliance on signs is an excellent example of the type of belief that we read about in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, that Jesus does not believe in. Jesus understood the nature of genuine believing and knowing, and he recognized the facade when he encountered it. Nicodemus did not, relate, did not realize what he was fully saying about knowing Jesus was from God, right? He, he, he had a hint, but he didn't fully understand what he had said. 
So Jesus' response opens with truly, truly, the double amen, right, that was introduced back in chapter 1, verse 51, indicating the importance of the statement that follows. The phrase kingdom of God, familiar throughout the synoptic gospels, is used only here and in verse 5 in John's gospels. John seems to prefer eternal life language rather than kingdom of God. Its use here shows John's awareness that Jesus employed this vocabulary to help explain the dynamic relationship humans can have with God. And the key word in the response is, right, genithi anonthen. The first verb um, is rendered born, right? And the second verb, the meaning of the second verb is multidimensional. And it can mean again or from above and less likely from the beginning. So while again is certainly the common rendering, the Greek translator may have chosen this word to show Nick's misunderstanding to come. When Jesus spoke to Nick, he certainly meant the Pharisees should experience birth from God or from above. Nick interprets Jesus' response in physical terms, right? And his response is reasonable for someone unfamiliar with the regeneration terminology of the New Testament age. And I think we forget that. Right, that Nick actually made a pretty reasonable response to what Jesus said. Um, as we witness to those who are from non-Christian or other non-Orthodox Christian backgrounds, we should consider how our words are heard in their context. As an example I've used many times, my Baha'i friend, who said we both believe in Jesus, but in further discussion determined we believe in very different renderings of Jesus. Right, So this is true of much of our terminology. And we must be careful to have gospel conversations in the language of those to whom we minister and not force our terminology on them. Right? If they can't hear you, they can't hear you. Right? And so we have to render the gospel in ways they can hear. Right? My Baha'i friend, I can't say Jesus because he sits there and nods. And so we have to go into something more specific when we're talking about what you and I understand Jesus to be in order to get that communication in the opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Um, let's see, now I gotta figure out where I was. Yeah, Jesus' response to Nick begins again with a double amen. In verse five, Jesus provides a little more detail into the birth, that it is of water and spirit, right? Water here is associated with life. Being in a desert environment in Israel and the surrounding area, water is an indispensable requirement of life. Uh, Christians view heaven as having a life-endued stream flowing from the throne of God and a specific kind of life characterized by justice and righteousness. The life-giving spirit is shown in the breath of God that brought Adam to life in Genesis and the spirit-wind breath of God that brought life to the the dry bones in Ezekiel. The combination of water and spirit shows a life different than Nick's understanding of physical existence. Right? And here, flesh, which is the Greek word sarx, is different than the flesh Paul talks about in Romans and associated with our sinful nature. Here, flesh means human frailty, weakness, or finiteness. And that's from Genesis and Isaiah. Contrasted to this flesh, the spirit represented the power of God to transform frail humans into powerful servants of God. The flesh is unable, because of its frailty, to attain the destiny of eternal life. 
but the Spirit is the empowering means to life. That's John 6.63. The birth by water and Spirit is linked to one of the two usages of kingdom of God in John, since such a birth indeed is indeed from above. The spirit and wind voiced here is a wordplay in the Greek, illustrating the nature of Christians as children of the spirit or wind. Note the ignorance of wind is not a reference to modern meteorology, good grief, but ancient understanding of the wind that they could discern neither its source nor its destination, but they could certainly feel and hear its force. Its sound or voice equals phone. That's the Greek word. The example of the wind provides an example of how believers of Jesus may appear to outsiders. Right? First century outside observers probably had little knowledge of how Christians became followers of Jesus and understood less about their eschatological destinies. What they could sense was the work and present of presence of these children of the Spirit in the Jewish and pagan societies of the day. The Christian presence was telling, was telling as to the formula, formulation and understandings of Christianity. Their and our lives witness to an unseen reality. Right, so Nick's final question indicates he has fallen into a helpless doubt. Uh, Jesus' answer in verse 10 is an example of the Johnian patterns of reversal. A leader and teacher of the Jews comes to Jesus as a seeking knower, but by the time Jesus asked his first question, it was clear Nicodemus did not know. The irony in the exchange is Nick, the earthly teacher who was shown to be a poor learner of Jesus' message, Jesus who is son of God. Right, Nick did not know the core subject matter of his vocation as a teacher and a leader. We should note the importance of questions that Jesus asks people. These questions are a significant literary tool in John's gospel. Many come at decisive points in the conversation and cause the reader to watch for important affirmations in a teaching segment. With the current question, Nick ceases to be the center of the author's attention and the focus shifts to Jesus and his personal witness. Nick will return in later passages as we discussed above. We good? I'm surprised nobody's crashing from a sugar buzz off of the fudge. Y'all are doing very well. If y'all need a recharge, you can always go back and get some. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> Actually, y'all just kind of on a steady supply. Yeah, and that's no offense to the podcast people, but y'all are missing some good fudge, man. And that was from my girl. My girl, so this is my girl's fudge. So Mama Rachel's fudge is good stuff. Yeah, I'll, I'll clap for that. Thank you, sweetie. Uh, all right. John 3, 11 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, then how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. And as a side note, the very first sermon I ever heard, uh, A.W. Tozer is a pastor from, the, from Chicago, um, very deep teacher, never had a congregation beer, about 200 people. And the very first sermon I heard him teach on was John 3, uh, 3.16. And he read it, and there was a seven-minute pause after he read it. And I thought my recording was dead, but it kept rolling. And he said, these words are almost too holy. He said, I know this is in the wheelhouse of a lot of preachers. He said, they preach it over and over. He said, and this was when he was, this was probably four years before he died. He said, this is one of a handful of times I've ever preached these verses. He said, they are too holy and too reverent. And I think oftentimes we speak them like they are trite. And we do not take in the awe-inspiring view of God they provide us, right? I think we miss that. I think taking a second and listening to the words, right, matters. All right. The third double amen introduces the first section of John's gospel that speaks to Jesus' presence in the gospel. The overall idea of this section deals with the purpose of Jesus' coming and the importance of believing in or receiving him. Verse 11 brings this into focus with the verb speaking and witnessing, couplets based on knowing and seeing. All of those verbs represent important themes throughout John's gospel. Right? The statement is supposed to be a solemn assertion about the nature of bearing witness and the fact that adequate testimony is rooted in personal experience. Right? Verse 13 through 15 answer Nick's doubt and expand the Christological significance of the gospel. Right? The descent of the Son of Man is not like the common stories of the time or formulations of the Gnostics as it is rooted in heavenly realities. Right? There are all kinds of cultural stories about stuff like this. But, it was, but it, none of them took on this particular, this particular way of things happening. The aorist tense of the verb in, intends to show an event in history quite unlike any concept of the Son of Man in Enoch or in Daniel, verses, particularly verse, chapter 7, verse 14. But it does pick up those themes from those passages, right? This descent is unlike anything in Jewish or Hellenistic literature. The descent of Jesus, the Son of Man, involved Jesus actually becoming human, right? Flesh, that's that Sark's word again. The idea was completely rejected by the Gnostics, and although hinted at by texts like Isaiah 53, was actually missed by the Jewish interpreters. It was even misunderstood by Jesus' disciples until after the resurrection. Right? The combination of ascent and descent in this part of Jesus' great Christological formula. John knew Jesus had to come to earth from heaven, live, die, and was raised, and is once again with God in heaven, 
since he was writing post-ascension, right? The God-given means to understand these heavenly realities is through, quote, no one but the one, unquote. That's what the Greek translates, who has descended from heaven, Christ Jesus. This is central to the Christian gospel's claim that it is the only way to salvation because Jesus alone descended and has ascended to heaven. Verse 14 takes the, is the first of three lifted up sayings in John, along with 828 and 1232. And they highlight the historical importance of the crucifixion in the formulation of John's doctrines of Christ and salvation. The sign or pole on which Moses placed the bronze snake in Numbers 21, 8 and 9 served as a symbol of life to the dying, snake-bitten Israelites of Exodus. Right? They rebelled against God. God released a bunch of snakes among them that bit them. And some of them died. And they came to Moses and, and repented and said, you know, we've, we, we've sinned against you, against God. Pray for us. So Moses prayed. God tells him, make a serpent, put it on a pole, and whoever sees it will be healed. And so he puts it on a pole and lifts it up so that they can see it and be healed. Right? They put Jesus on a cross where he was lifted up so you can see him and be healed. This symbol has been employed here to illustrate the lifting up of Jesus on the cross as God's way of providing eternal life to all who believe, right? Note this lifting up is not Jesus' exaltation, but in his suffering on the cross. Jesus will certainly be exalted, but this lifting up is in reference to the cross, right? Eternal life appears in John's gospel for the first of 17 times here. It occurs only once in the Septuagint in January 12, 12.2. In Daniel, it is linked to the concept of resurrection. In John, it is best translated eternal life. And this is not a quantity of life, but a quality. As when we are saved, we have eternal life now. Note this does not exclude the idea of life without end, as John 6.58 says that whoever eats of the bread of life will live forever. But eternal life is a qualitatively different life lived in obedience to the glory of God. And you all get that? So eternal life is not a quantity, but a quality of life. Right? It's a quality of life. That's why when, when we are saved, we have eternal life. We have a whole different way of life being framed. Right? You, have, you have those of us in the room that are saved. You have eternal life right now. Right? Your life should be qualitatively different than those who don't believe. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? I thought that was really cool. All right. All right. This last section we look at tonight needs to be taken together. And we love to separate 16, sometimes 16 and 17 from the bunch. Uh, John 3.16 is certainly one of the best known verses from the New Testament, but it's important not to separate the concepts in these five verses. And the New American Commentary had a really good, had a really good quote that I paraphrased. Anyway, uh, so uh, Borchardt says, verse 16 serves as a statement of fact involving the agency of God, the agency, the agency God used to bring salvation to the world. Verse 17 expands on God's intention and clearly identifies God's purpose in sending the Son. Verse 18 provides a pointed reality statement concerning the present nature of judgment, a reality no reader should fail to understand. Only when the three verses are allowed to hang together does the reader begin to grasp the full meaning of the coming of Jesus and the Johnian message of salvation expounded here. 
Verse 16 involves no superficial idea of love in God's salvation. The verbs to express, the verbs express the self-giving nature of God in having sent his only son on an unrepeatable mission to the world. The pathos of only son echoes Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac in Genesis 2, 22, 2. Christian salvation has been very costly to God because it cost God his son. We cannot truly enter the process of salvation until we understand the immeasurable cost God paid and the implications of cost to our lives to follow him. Jesus must be received in authentic believing, as we discussed back in 2.23 to 25. To come to Jesus as Nick did with a superficial view of how he is will not result in salvation, but lead to confusion and frustration. Right? God's agency in salvation is critically important. Salvation starts with God, not with man. God has given humanity a sense of freedom and requires a choice that comes with responsibility and people are responsible for believing. This is a fantastic example of the tension of God's sovereignty and our responsibility and how they interact in miraculous ways. Right? We went over that for two classes in systematic theology. So if you want to go any deeper, they're on a podcast. And it was fascinating. So God's purpose for sending him son, his son was not condemnation, but salvation. Jesus did not come to destroy the world. God is not an angry, self-centered, an angry and self-centered as Marcion, Marcion and the Gnostics and many today interpret the God of the Old Testament. Right? God is a caring God as his loving kindness right, has said is a principal attribute of God. God's purpose in sending Jesus was to build a bridge of salvation in reconciling sacrifice, bringing us from our hopeless state of death into life eternal with God. He did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. God's plan was to reverse humanity's fate, to provide a means by which they can be saved. God's desire is for all to be saved, right? Acts 17, 30 through 31, uh, 22, 15 through 17, 1 Timothy 2, 6. Because of the human freedom he gave us, not all choose to respond in believing acceptance. John 1, 11 through 13, Romans 1, 5, and 10, 16. As a result, their rejection shows they are condemned, right? They're not going to be condemned. They are condemned. Our unbelieving friends are condemned, right? are condemned. I gotta figure out where I was. I get lost in this, I'm sorry. I don't usually teach from notes. It means God, uh, overlooking the condemnation explicit in the gospel is to have an incomplete gospel. We need to fully understand, we need a full understanding of the condemnation of God. And that understanding should compel us to humility and gratitude in our own salvation, as well as urgency to witness this good news in hopes that others' hearts will turn toward the Lord. The salvation of the unsaved is not our responsibility, but being a witness to the work of God in and through and around us is done in obedience to God's command. Condemnation is not some future change. They are already condemned, and that's heartbreaking. 
So verse 19 through 21 returns us to visions of light and darkness that John introduced in 1, 4 through 6, right? In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, right? There was a man sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So in these verses, the idea is expanded by the clear indication that what one does comes out of who one is. The state of their heart, darkness, hate, and doing evil is set against light, living by truth, and works done by God. Right? And the connection between doing and being is critically important. Right? We have often talked about, we talked about this a lot in here, right, in terms of essence and existence. Right? Essence is who we are. Existence is what we do. Many philosophies in our world say that, that existence precedes essence. That what we do precedes who we are. And essentially we are what we do, right? Those philosophies will also tell you that you can do whatever you want, that it doesn't matter what you do. So if you draw the line, if it doesn't matter what you do, and I am what I do, then I don't matter. And you wonder why the world's so lost and broken. Right? So we believe that essence precedes existence, that God defines who we are, and then we go act like it. We see the truth of that throughout Scripture, right? The coordination of works and faith, as expounded on in James 2, 14 through 26, is an integral part of our Christian thought. Right, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Hebrews 9, 14, and 2 Peter 8. Does that make sense? Right? God defines who we are. And then we go act like it. You don't have to figure out who you are. God tells you who you are. Right? So thoughts. Um, I love Frederick Beekner's definition of love. Uh, Frederick Beekner, uh, they have the, the Beekner lectures at, at Princeton, the Princeton Theological Seminary. Um, and I don't agree with him. He's, he's a mainliner, so I don't agree theologically, but he always, reading him always makes me think and points me Christward. And so I don't agree with this in everything in this, but I think this is beautifully said. So it says, the first stage is to believe that there's only one kind of love. The middle stage is to believe that there are many kinds of love and that the Greeks had a different word for each of them. The last stage is to believe there is only one kind of love. The unabashed eros of lovers, the sympathetic filet of friends, agape giving itself away freely, no less for the murderer than for the victim. The King James Version translates this as charity. These are all varied manifestations of a single reality. To lose yourself in another's arms or in another's company or in suffering for all who suffer, including the ones who inflict suffering upon you. To lose yourself in such ways is to find yourself. It's what about. It's what, what's it, it's what is what it's all about, is what love is. Of all the powers, love is the most powerful and the most powerless. It's the most powerful because it alone can conquer that final and most impregnable stronghold that is the human heart. It is the most powerless because it can do nothing except by consent. To say that God is love is romantic idealism. To say that God is love is either the last straw or the ultimate truth. In the Christian sense, love is not primarily an emotion but an act of will. When Jesus tells us to love our neighbors, he is not telling us to love them in the sense of responding to them with a cozy emotional feeling. You can as easily produce a cozy emotional feeling on demand as you can a yawn or a sneeze. On the contrary, 
He is telling us to love our neighbors in the sense of being willing to work for their well-being, even if it means sacrificing our own well-being to that end, even if it means sometimes just leaving them alone. This, thus, in Jesus' terms, we can love our neighbors without necessarily liking them. In fact, liking them may stand in the way of loving them by making us overprotective sentimentalists instead of reasonably honest friends. When Jesus talked to the Pharisees, he didn't say, there, there, everything's going to be all right. He said, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? Right, Matthew 12, 34. And he said that to them because he loved them. This does not mean that liking may not be a part of loving, only that it doesn't have to be. Sometimes liking follows on the heels of loving. It's hard to work for people's well-being very long without coming in the end to rather like them too. And our family uses John 3.16 as its underpinning for the, gospel frame, for, our, for the framework of our gospel conversations. I thought I'd throw this in here. We've, we've had this since Jay preached it last January. Um, we start with love, right? God so loved the world, right? That God loved the world, right? He, he agape, which is a different kind of love of the world. But God's love is a specific sacrificial kind of love that wishes the best for the entire world. The world is not loved because it was lovely, but rather it's lovely because God loves it. Son, he sent the, his one and only son. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, the incarnation of love, the word among us. This is a radical notion that completely reconfigures how we think of both divinity and humanity. Right, perish, that, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Right, we're in danger of perishing. We're actually perishing, right, without Christ. The evidence is clear all around us. The world groans for redemption. But God has come in Jesus to the place of our perishing. Right? God came down. And life, but have eternal life. The result of the gift of Jesus is an eternal life that begins now. We live like the kingdom is here now because it is. As we think about that, right, starting in love is often a good footing for the gospel conversations. I love how, how this is centered on Christ, right, how Christological it is. Right, centered on God sending his only son. And God is not solving a problem in sending Christ. Right, this was the plan all along. Right, rooting the conversation in love also roots it in relationship. The important relationship between God and the world. So many of the ills of our persons and culture can only be prevented and healed by being adequately loved, but not a love in a self-centered, self-affirming, sentimental love, but in the sense in which Christ meant it, sacrificial love that loves us even when we are unlovable and always working toward our holiness. People do not need to be loved sentimentally, but sacrificially. So through this whole passage, right, we see the goodness of God in loving us so much that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that it might be saved through him. I can't say any better than that. Merry Christmas. We good? All right, easy questions, right?
Let's see. Figure out which of these things has our questions in. Have you got the questions on there? Thank you. It may be easier. Thank you very much. I got to work on an iPhone. This should be exciting. Okay. Low battery. No, that's okay. This will be a good time limit. <laughs> make, it, make, make it exciting. It's kind of like a countdown timer that you can't see. All right. Uh, thanks, Brian. You've been a blessing teaching this class. Love you, brother. Thank you. That's very kind. Uh, how will we keep up with your knee? That's a fantastic question. Um, I don't move very fast, so um, it'll be pretty easy to keep up with me. And it just locked on me. Yeah, let me take this one. All right, we'll switch phones. Now I don't have a countdown timer anymore. Uh, let's see. Uh, you said easy questions, so what are your plans over spring break? That's a great question because yeah, we got suns scattered everywhere. Uh, what will you do with all your time that you've spent on us? Uh, thank you, and I thank God for you. Very, very kind. Uh, does this mean the end to awkward questions in Slido? I hope so. Please don't follow me to my home. Um, I mean, you can. We, we'll, we'll serve you. I mean, Rachel makes magnificent fudge, so uh, she cooks all kinds of other things. Well, we keep using a hyphen in your name, Governor. Oh, man. Uh, thanks for your commitment and perseverance. Do you think John was boiled in oil and didn't die? I seem to understand that, but I don't remember why. Uh, thanks again for your commitment to teaching us. God bless you and your family. God is good, and he is good. Um, Good stuff, going to miss your teaching, but praying for you. Uh, do you think Tozer paused for seven minutes to signify the completeness of Jesus? Wow, that's a fantastic question. I never really thought about that. The seven minute significant thing, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know, I don't know whether he, ti I, you know, I, don't, I don't remember whether, what I don't, I, he was 1958 when he preached that sermon probably. Um, did they have clocks back then? I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't ask. I'm sorry, I was, I was not quite around yet. I'm just kidding. Y'all can beat me up out after church. That's not a good way to end ministry here. Um, I, think, I think that's what we got. Um, thank you all. It's uh, been, been, been a good run, right? And I, and I hope that you've learned more about Jesus. And I've, as with this week, as with every week, I hope you walk out here think, thinking about him and praising God.